Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Spoiler Warning Podcast. This is review number 691 with our review of The Power of the Dog. I'm Christopher Snazy. And I'm Stephen Miller. And if you're joining us for the first time, the Spoiler Warning Podcast is a weekly film review program. Each week in the show, we're going to dive in, debate, discuss, and argue over the latest films coming to a streaming platform near you. This week, Power of the Dog um, is a film that uh, came to Netflix um, this past weekend. Stephen and I caught this... Weeks, months ago, uh, an eternity ago, I don't know what it was, um, at one of the festivals this year. And, you know, we were both excited to talk about it back then. We were looking forward to a potential review. Um, And to get started with this review, Stephen, I'm going to ask you a question that is probably going to tease a spoiler segment we're going to need to have later on in this episode. Yep. Yeah, I I know this section, and I think we definitely have to have it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there are lots of films... Uh, out there in the world that are, you know, slightly ambiguous about different things. There are other films that, you know, might have twists and turns throughout it. And, you know, you might be able to finish a film and interpret the ending one way or interpret it another. I had an experience watching this film where uh, I, I, I felt the same way that you felt about the film uh, when we saw it at the festival. Um, and then I was getting ready to watch it again for this review. And I learned that I fundamentally misunderstood the entire film. (laughs) Mm. Um, uh, So far, like to the point that it feels as though I watched The Sixth Sense and didn't even see the twist and and, and watch and somebody told me the twist now. And then I just watched, rewatched The the Sixth Sense. (laughs) And it fundamentally changed, like... What I know now, having rewatched the film, literally changed every single scene in this film. Mm. And I do not know what to think about this film. And I want to ask you, Stephen, how do you talk about a film when you're not even sure what to believe anymore? <laughs> mm. See, I thought you were going to say, how do you have a non-spoilery conversation when the whole film is tinged by... A thing that is fundamentally a spoiler that you know now because of a second watch um, like 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 we we will we will get into it in in our spoiler segment but it's not it, it's it completely reflavors literally every scene that certain characters like every facial everything every facial tick yep. uh emotion reads completely differently during this rewatch and it's like it it is it is fundamentally broken my brain that i have so much so i have other theories about certain characters which interesting not even on the table for me originally and i'm just like oh my god this is not even this it's it's not it's like that's why i compared it to the sixth sense it is fundamentally a different film to me now and i don't know how to reconcile these two watching experiences um and it's just kind of like i mean i think in in terms of considering the art of the movie or something, I know this is the cliche everyone says all the time, but the fact that it holds up to different interpretations, I would argue it doesn't when taken as a whole. There is one clear interpretation of this film, but the fact that the the actors and the way scenes play out can work in two very different ways is a strength of a movie, not a weakness. And you don't need to 
the fact you, you can take the meta fact that the movie changed and still plays differently as a thing to like about it rather than be like what is this movie now and how do i feel i think yeah. the movie is both experiences that you had it can't just be the knowledgeable one that you had yeah yeah it is true it, it, it just it, it, this was a very strange experience of watching this film because I've, I've i've literally never had and it's not just like re-watching the prestige where mm-hmm. given certain bits of information it recontextualizes all these moments throughout the film for you in a way that is like oh i clever i see what you did this is like i watched a different movie mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like it's like i i had illegally downloaded a foreign film and tried to download subtitles from a fan site and accidentally got the wrong movie and somehow they lined up enough that i was like yeah yeah, yeah, that was pretty cool. And then now I'm yeah. watching it with the correct subtitles and I'm going, oh, oh my God, this is not the same movie at all. See, this is, I, I would say this is kind of like the opposite of my Calvary experience where I, <laughs> I missed the clear statement of how it would end. And so I read the movie as a subtle buildup of dread <laughs> going somewhere no one could know and then in reality everyone else who watched it like knew where it was heading and now <laughs> it's like you know where it's heading and so you you perceive it differently but yeah. i'm i'm very intrigued because you texted me shortly before i had assumed you rewatched the movie already because you texted me talking about that and that inspired me to rewatch the movie with joanna um but what you texted me i was shocked that that had been your interpretation <laughs> um, originally and then i'll say when i watched this movie with joanna she not only got it immediately but she saw it as foreshadowed long before i did in my first rewatch so it made me like it it made me feel dumb (laughs) Um, yeah yeah but that's the thing is that on the one hand if i just take a motivation as being a thing or not technically flip-flopping what what those things are kind of doesn't matter mm-hmm. if that is the only thing you think rides on that. But I think right. that there are ripples that go back all the way through this film to a way where I'm mm-hmm. like, oh my God, I fundamentally misunderstood certain characters and I have like wild new speculation about backstories and things like that where I'm like, man, I'm in a I'm, whole cinematic universe now that I wasn't in before. I, I think this review is going to be mostly spoilers and I'm excited. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, we can't just jump straight into spoilers. We have to talk for the folks that haven't seen this film yet. Um, So what do you say, Stephen? We take a listen to the trailer for The Power of the Dog, and then we come back and give a a brief non-spoilery review. Let's do it. Only another man. 
That was a trailer for The Power of the Dog. <laughs> it is a story of two brothers who are ranchers, and it sort of follows the relationship that those brothers have and uh, how those brothers interact with each other as um, the familial bonds start to st stretch out from there and new people come into the life um, that used to be just the two brothers. Yeah, that's fine. That's good enough, right? <laughs> sure. Uh, Stephen Miller, what did you think of this film? Um, so even on a rewatch, I felt very similarly to how I felt after watching a TIFF, which was that I loved this movie. I thought it was great. It is just, it is a perfectly tuned movie, I think, which is going to be interesting when we get to spoilers and talk about how even in that perfect tuning, you might still have wildly different uh, beliefs that come from it. But there's something about the movie where everything just feels very, very, very intentional. Like every shot feels meaningful. Uh, the Johnny Greenwood score, I think, is like wonderfully haunting. Um, the opening of this movie, just right out the gate, you have like the heavy score, you have voiceover narration, you have uh, like, what is it? Cows running around, horses. It, it puts you in the place immediately and it says like, this is a movie that is going to carry you somewhere. Um, get swept up in the journey. You know, you are in good hands. And I felt that again, immediately rewatching it. Uh, I was kind of delighted this time around to get to see all the little clues that Jane Campion places everywhere. Um, little things that really tell you that the movie could only go the way that it eventually goes. I, I think it just feels like a movie that was perfectly constructed. Um, I think a lot of this movie hinges on Benedict Cumberbatch's performance. Um, the first time around, I felt only like he was amazing. Uh, I think we had seen uh, The Electric Life of Louis Wayne um, in yeah. the same day. So we had literally seen a Benedict Cumberbatch that is like the polar opposite of the character of Phil Burbank. Um, <laughs> and so there, all I felt is, wow, what a menacing presence. Uh, how interesting. And this time around watching the movie, I still think he's fantastic. But I think he's fantastic in a way that like goes against the type of the character to get to the heart of who the character i i hope it isn't a spoiler to say i i think he was cast for who the character really is deep down rather than how the character acts for much of the movie and i think there's a very interesting thing about his performance that it is not natural for Benedict Cumberbatch. And I think part of what makes this movie so good is that you feel how natural or unnatural his behavior is. I, again, I'm tiptoeing on spoilers too much, but I, yeah. I found his performance more interesting the second time around because it isn't just a big black hole of menacing asshole. Like it is, uh, it has more layers to it than that. And I think pretty much everyone in this movie has more layers on second viewing that you can only really appreciate from knowing where the movie is going and then retrofitting it to the rest of it. Um, I think Kirsten Dunst is great here. She is kind of the audience surrogate. I think we are not meant to, in spoiler-free section, even say why or what she represents, but I think she's kind of the the heart of the movie that you absorb things through. Um, I... I don't know if I'm contradicting my tip review. I don't fully understand Jesse Plemons in most movies, um, <laughs> including you mean, here. Don't understand I, the choices he's making, or like literally the existence of this character. 
the choices the choices Jesse Plemons makes in every movie do not feel human to me. Um, I like the softness that this character represents. I don't understand him. <laughs> um, and I felt this way about multiple Jesse Plemons performances. Like people love him. And I, there's something fundamentally like f- fake or inhuman about the way he chooses to play roles that I just don't, totally understand and if anyone doesn't fit into this world fully i feel like it's the jesse plemons character um i still care about him i just don't i don't know i've had a mental block against jesse plemons ever since breaking bad (laughs) (laughs) well so it's really interesting that you feel that way because i think in the in the context of this film he is the same character as uh, Kirsten Dunst. Like, Mm. he represents everything that she does. He is alienated from this group of people that he is sort of part of, or that, that, like, they as a couple are uh, societally, class-wise, they're sort of the same, right? And they are trying to play in spaces that are outside of their comfort zone not not the actors themselves but like they're the people they are playing are people who are fish out of water in Mm -hmm. you know a place that has no water um yeah (laughs) um but so to me i see them as the same person like the the journey that she goes on is because jesse plemons put her there and he put her there because he was already there and mm-hmm. and like there is a very tragic sort of uh pairing off that they create and like there is some like incredibly pathetic stuff that Jesse Plemons's character says which is like Kirsten Dunst should kind of be offended by it in a way where it's like this isn't why you be with somebody right right <laughs> you know what i mean so it's like i i see them as the same person and they're both sort of wet blankets um mm-hmm. you know she comes with a child so she 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 has inherently in what her character is, she has more going on for her. Um, and we spend more time from her point of view. But I don't see her as different than Jesse Plemons. So to me, Jesse Plemons, like I prefer Jesse Plemons playing characters like Benedict Cumberbatch is playing in this film, right? Like I, mm-hmm. I love when he is still sort of alien, but just sinister and like, just like secretly just evil, right? Like like that sort of feeling. Yeah. Um, but in this one, I kind of just see him as tragic. Um, and, and yeah, so it just, yeah. No, no. Yeah. I, he's, he's fine. I just, I, I feel like, I don't know why I'm going on this long at tangent around <laughs> Jesse Plymouth, um, but <laughs> I feel like he plays in every role. He makes choices like interesting kind of um, odd choices. And I think, to me, those choices often come across as stilted, and there are there are roles where that stiltedness fits the character to me. Like I think I'm thinking of ending things; it fits perfectly with what that movie is doing. Um, <laughs> I think when he is playing a character with a dark side, it also fits perfectly because there is the alienness, as you mentioned, is part of the core of the character. Yeah. Um, in this movie, I feel like his stiltedness it, it exists 
in moments when it makes sense to as a character and exists in moments when it doesn't. And there's, there's just something on second viewing. I, I don't know why he didn't ring as true to me as uh, some of the other characters, but I still, whatever, he's fine. I'll watch him (laughs) anyway. um, I think the big, like Cody Smith McPhee to me was the biggest revelation on second viewing. uh, And we'll just have to get into spoilers to say more, but basically the cast is top notch with an asterisk that I just as a human being fundamentally don't really get Jesse Plemons. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I think the directing is just amazing. I think the way this builds tone, we talked uh, in our TIFF review about there will be blood, I think. And I think that is a comparison for me. Or I talked about it because I think you yeah, hadn't seen I, it. I still um, haven't seen it. <laughs> yeah. I, there will be blood is like a dark epic story about, you know, uh, a man's thirst for power and how it basically costs him everything. Um, this movie feels like that kind of grand sweeping Gothic ethic or epic, but everything is hidden like a few feet below the surface. Like the, this movie has like big swings, but they are all being told kind of like in a layer beneath the main story. On second viewing, I will say, because I knew everything it was going to do, it felt more obvious and a little bit less like subterranean to me than it did the first time around. Um, I think that's just the nature of watching a movie that you've already known the twist for. Uh, But I still think it is amazing what Jane Campion does with so little by way of pure text. You know, uh, the use of music in this, like a whistle, uh, the use of a comb to build dread certain visuals that recur in the movie and you don't know why they matter. But then when the movie ends, you understand why all those visuals were what they were. Um, even the, the big giant twists in this movie. And I would say there are two big quote twists. One of which happens halfway through the movie. One of which happens at the end. Neither are really told on the nose that much even even like the grand twists are still told in a way that is like trusting the viewer to follow along and get it without making it very dramatic in the moment like i just think there's a really interesting thing she does here i think it makes it extremely enjoyable i do think it wasn't quite as wonderful on second viewing just because that journey the first time of where the hell is this going is kind of hard to beat but yeah big big fan nonetheless yeah, I'm, I, I think back when we saw it at the festival, I was a huge fan of this film. And I think one thing I talked about in that uh, sort of big grouped review that we did was that this was a film that I was vibing on. And then when it got to the end, it really hit me like a ton of bricks. Um, yeah. Bricks that were unfounded. <laughs> Apparently. Um, which we'll get into later. And I think that it was really the culmination of a film that is not the film that we watched is what really sucked me in by the end and like made it all that made that journey worth it. Um, This film is beautiful. Like we talked a lot about how like there were a couple different films during the festival that were, that took place in Montana. And it turns Mm. out that if you sub in Montana for uh, New Zealand, it's really (laughs) fucking beautiful landscape. (laughs) Yep. 
<laughs> it's really amazing. Um, uh, so, so it's like every second of just moving through the environment, whether it's just a car on a little road or a train going across like the desolate landscape, really, really beautiful. As you talked about, like a lot of like really, really um, intentional shots. Um, you know, the, the acting in this is, is pretty amazing. Characters are asked to do a lot. Um, in ways, it's way more oppressive the second time you view it. <laughs> Because you understand what is actually happening there. I'm actually really, really curious um, to talk about the two sort of twists that you um, are yeah. talking about. Um, I may have had a little bit of knowledge. I, I don't actually know what the first halfway through twist is that you're talking about. I can get, I can try to guess in my head. Um, but I think I might have had knowledge prior to sitting down to watch it about something related to the subject matter. So it mm-hmm. might have been that mm-hmm. that to me was what I was getting into which might have flavored a lot of different interpretations of things throughout the film um but yeah. we'll, we'll get into that a little bit later um yeah i, I think benedict Cumberbatch is amazing in, in this film he is he is scary but also tragic and sort of like for how much of an asshole he is he is incredibly sympathetic um as the like you know obviously as the story goes on but i think that like you you see that his you you see what made him like you see that his who he is and how he has survived in the west um uh is sort of informed by who he has become to like harden himself in the wilderness and blah blah blah, blah. Mm-hmm. like it, it's it is a character who obviously you wouldn't want to be the target of his uh you know, mayhem, <laughs> but at the same time, you do feel sorry for him at like, I, I, at least I, I, the way I interpreted yeah. this film really felt sorry for him most of the time and like wanted him to not be so bad. <laughs> but, uh, I can fix him. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I really, really enjoyed it on second watch. I, I just can't talk in a non-spoiler way because it's it, it's it's literally a different film. It is not even the same film. <laughs> the backstories are different uh, than what I assumed, um, and characters are not. They're not playing the roles that I thought they were. <laughs> and we'll get into yep. that. The, the The big question is: Did I like the film as much the second time, or am I just confounded by like? <laughs> how mm-hmm. different this story was that I was watching the second time than it was the first time and not in an aha moment in a, like, a, Oh my God, this is the story. Like, am I, am I okay? <laughs> how, how is it so different on round two? No, it, like it, it seriously feels like it. And, and like what I chose to text to you before I had sat down to watch it was specifically about one key thing um, that happens in the story. I have been purposely vague about all the other things surrounding that because I wanted to have that time to sit on the podcast and actually hash through it with you. Um, yeah. So hopefully once I explain it all, you'll be like, oh, that is a different movie. <laughs> I feel like there was a movie we reviewed not that long ago where you had like a very deep, interesting interpretation of the film that was not the text of the movie at all, and then you hate, you were upset because you felt like it betrayed it at the end, and I was like, that was never what the movie was about. <laughs> I, I don't remember what it was, but... 
Yeah, in in my defense, I want to blame it just being festival brain, where it's like right. you're watching four to six films per day, and then in the middle of it, you're like, all right, let's see what this is. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, no, no, absolutely. And I, because I also... I, again, this is probably frustrating for viewers because I'm just going to say again, we'll get to it in spoilers. And they're like, yeah, we know we're going to listen to spoilers anyway. Um, but <laughs> there were things that I thought were like twists that you only get like at the like in the last like shot or two of the movie that it turns out a viewer who was like awake and not in festival brain probably would have gotten like in the moment instead. Yeah. yeah. Um and so there are some things there where, yeah, like watching four to six films a day every day for like two weeks will do that to you. So I'll, I get it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, should we get the verdicts for people who aren't going to stick around for spoilers? Yeah, let, let, let's do it. All right. Stephen Miller, if you're going to give us a must-see, record of the caveat, wait for rental, pass to the caveat, or must avoid, what would you give it? Uh, still a must-see. This is easily one of my favorite movies of the year, and I think it just is extremely well done it it feels more like a quote real movie than almost anything else of this year and i don't know exactly what i mean by that all i know is even movies that i love this year feel indie they feel small and this is like a fucking movie movie and i am very impressed that it manages to feel so big and sweeping and still have the kind of haunting character moments that it does and still twist the knife in such a precise way i just think it is a it is just an extremely well done movie and i think anybody would like it i i have trouble imagining an audience member going in and disliking it i'm sure they exist i just don't understand how <laughs> um yeah I, I i'm gonna stick with my musty review from the festival um because i mean i feel like that's the most appropriate way to review it right like the first time you saw it what did you actually feel about it in the moment yeah that is this once again, on rewatch, it doesn't change my opinion. It's just I have a new, fresh opinion on a different film. It's like mm-hmm. I, I, I watched two movies back to back, and now you're asking me how to rate them both as a collective work. <laughs> you have festival brain just from this movie multiple times. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's a film that is definitely worth the watch, no matter how you interpret it. And um, yeah, I hope I hope you... Enjoy it if you're listening and you haven't seen it yet. All right. For people who aren't going to stick around for spoilers, Stephen, do you want to say goodbye to them and let them know where they can find you? Sure. Uh, People can find me at twitter.com slash sdavidmiller or sdavidmiller.com. People can find me at ChristopherInRealLife.com or Twitter.com slash ChristopherIRL. You can find the podcast over at TheSpoilerWarning.com where you can get a bunch of the back episodes of the show. If you want to subscribe to the show, you can do so on Overcast, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever podcasts are found. If you want to know the episodes go live, you can follow us at Twitter.com slash SpoilerWarning, Facebook.com slash TheSpoilerWarning, um, or Instagram.com slash TheSpoilerWarning. If you want to get hold of us directly, you can send an email to fans at TheSpoilerWarning.com, or you can use the contact form on our site. Music for this episode will come from the soundtrack to The Power of the Dog, so hopefully you're enjoying that. That music is going to fade up. When that music fades out, we will be in full-blown spoilers for two different versions of of The Power of the Dog. Um, The Powers of the Dogs. Um, So so get get ready for that. This is going to be a very interesting conversation, at least for me. (laughs) 
All right. We are back. This is Spoiler Territory. It's the after part of our review of The Powers of the Dogs. (laughs) (laughs) So, Stephen Miller, do you want to start off and kind of just talk about the two twists? um, Sure. As as you see them? Yeah. So the the two main twists of the movie, as I see them, uh, the first, which I think you were hinting that you already knew, maybe it was said around the movie already, like, when people were describing it, maybe it was in the trailer. I don't remember if there was a trailer going into TIFF. I don't think there was a trailer um, at the time that we watched it. Yeah. So the the first one is that Benedict Cumberbatch is uh, not only an asshole, but he is also a closeted gay man. Um, this, this, for me, was received as a twist. Um, I didn't know anything about this movie going in. I didn't feel like his behavior was hinting at that, though, of course, there's always the truism that anyone who is that vitriolic uh, about someone's sexuality is probably closeting some, you know, so that's always like a little bit in the back of your mind. Yeah. But for me, that is revealed when he is like off away from the others and he is like bathing and he has been basically clutching this garment kerchief of something yeah. that I presume Buck Henry had left uh, behind because his initials are on it. What? Bronco Henry. Bronco Henry. <laughs> Not Buck Henry. But anyway, so that, that for me was received as the first big reveal of the movie. Yeah. And that isn't like the mind blowing, holy shit, I didn't see it coming reveal, but it is, you know, it's a big plot moment in the movie yeah, yeah. and it uh, contextualizes a lot of his behavior. What interested me watching it the second time is in my head the reveal was extremely straightforward there it like uh cody smith mcphee's character finds like porn porn in his tent or sees him doing something that makes it just like overtly clear that this is going on in the movie like even in round two he's like he is like caressing a piece of cloth, but it isn't sexual in nature necessarily. Like the cloth has been tucked in his waistband, um, yeah. but there's nothing that <laughs> he goes full Gawain on it almost. <laughs> sure. Yeah. 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 But, but there, there's nothing that like, <laughs> yeah, he definitely goes full Gawain. <laughs> you want the um, scarf? Tell me you want it. <laughs> I mean, he's, he's rubbing his Gawain with it. He's groin. Um, I got anyway, it. I didn't, I didn't need yeah. the translation. I, I know sometimes old English to English, it's important to translate. <laughs> um, but but anyway, I I don't have a lot to comment on there. It's just that the that reveal it, it is like him caressing a piece of cloth and the kid finding basically like magazines that I assume the original intent of those magazines is not uh, necessarily erotic in nature. And we all, we infer from those two things, what is going on that Benedict Cumberbatch is a gay man. And he was in love with Buck Henry, (laughs) Bronco Henry. (laughs) Who is Buck Henry? Why is that coming into my head? (laughs) He was in love with Bronco Henry. Um, Right there, though, it's just interesting to compare that to something like Brokeback Mountain of how, like, the idea of what constitutes revealing this about the character, not, you know, a sex scene, nothing over the top, just, like, gentle, subtle things that, like, the director is telling us unequivocally what it means. Um, So the second reveal, as I saw it, uh, occurs at the end of the movie, 
And that is that the rope that uh, Peter has Phil making for him, the rawhide that he brought him was like poisoned with anthrax and that he did this to kill Phil Burbank. Like he did this intentionally to kill him. The first time I watched this movie, that scene, maybe it was just because Benedict Cumberbatch is like so intense in that moment. I saw that whole scene as a very likely to be romantic moment where the kid has finally kind of not abandoned his mother, but he has decided I have more in common with Phil than I do with this person I've been trying to protect. And I am here late at night with him and I am showing him that I know who he is and I am the same way. And I saw lots of tension in that scene, like kind of romantic tension in the scene. And then the next morning, Benedict Cumberbatch is very sick. And I was like, oh, shit, what happened? And then he is dead. And Cody Smith-McPhee grabs the rope. And I'm like, oh, that's so sad. He's probably so sad. This is the last thing this guy he was falling in love for, like, with, left him. And then the doctor says anthrax. And then I was like, oh, (laughs) I get all of it. And it like so it wasn't until that moment that I even understood that like the rope is what you know what did him in, which then reflected back on the intention of Peter. Um and like it all rippled back to me in like the closing minute or two of the movie. Um and that made me feel dumb because Joanna told me like, yeah, but when his cut up hand was like in the water bucket with rawhide it was clear that like the kid had brought him the anthrax, you know, hide and he was going to die. And I, I don't know if it's just but, festival brain that it took me that long the first time I watched it to understand what was happening. But, but so, so the thing I texted you relates to the scene specifically, um, mm-hmm. but it's not, it's, it's not fully all of it, but I just want to repeat what you just said what you just said and what Joanna saw and, and I know you're just paraphrasing. So these might not have been her same, her exact words, but what, what, what she said in your paraphrasing was when his cut up hand was in the water and he had brought him rawhide, I knew he was going to get infected and die. Yeah. That obvious to me, hundred percent on board the thing that I did not get because I was working on a bunch of other different things in my head about this story was that that was an intentional thing that in order to protect his mom from Benedict Cumberbatch's characters or or, or a character, his everything about him, he specifically sought out uh, anthrax. In fact, like basically a dead cow skinned it with the intention of somehow at some point in time infecting with anthrax and killing him to protect his mom. Yeah. Those are two completely different things. Like to me, it was, it was obvious and tragic. And like, I knew that's where it was going. Like the second he cut his hand, I was like, this motherfucker is going to die of anthrax. <laughs> oh, like I, I was on board with that. What I was not on board of was the malicious act that the kid took, um, which we can get into more in just a bit. But like, to me, that was the only thing I was missing. No, no, no. Yeah, I, I, I understand. I understood that from your text. Yeah. Uh, to me, 
the first time watching it, those two revelations came in unison. Like I couldn't have one without the other. Uh, and I think to yeah. Joanna, both of those things that he was going to die and that it was intentional came at the same time also. Uh, so I think for both of us, the two were one. Yeah. Uh, and it, it's interesting because to me, like the, the retroactive thing happened where the moment I realized, oh, it was the rope. Then I remember, oh, the camera lingered on the kid's gloves. And then I remember, oh, the kid has been reading medical books and he's like in medical school and he's like a doctor in training and on and on and on. And like the, the aha moment immediately reveals motivation as well. Yeah. So I'm curious how you kept the aha moment and didn't feel motivation. It, for, for me, the reason... The reason I kept it is because I was watching this film as a cyclical tragic tale of a a person, Bronco Henry, takes a young man who is sort of just learning about his own sexuality, takes him under his wing, and teaches him how to survive in the Old West, and teaches him how to quote-unquote be a man, and and not be somebody who is going to be picked on by other cowboys and stuff like that. And he becomes this mentoring figure who goes, I see you. I know you. I will protect you. And then dies of anthrax. <laughs> like, cause Bronco mm. Henry also died of anthrax, um, which is the mm. reason why Benedict Cumberbatch is so, I don't touch dead animals and stuff like that. See, I didn't catch that part even on round two that Bronco Henry died of anthrax. I'm I'm almost a hundred percent certain unless I'm just like reading too much into it, but I'm pretty sure that like that's the whole thing behind behind I, I swear it's like an offhanded statement he makes at some point in time, which might have mm. been the moment he gives the idea to the boy. Mm. Um but so what I'm watching is a story that is simultaneously tragic in the this boy finds somebody who will teach him the ways of the West. Um, and, and, you know, when I say the West, I'm just talking about in general, like cowboys type of situation. Yeah. Um, he teaches him how to be a cowboy. And just when he's starting to learn everything, this mentor person is taken from him. On the other side of that coin is this man who is a hardened man who can't let himself love anything decides to take this person under his wing and tries to be his Bronco Henry and is killed by the first act of genuine compassion for this person. So to me, that is a story that I'm watching of this cyclical nature of a person um, finding a person who can understand them and then losing them for a reason that wasn't... Um, yeah, like 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 to me, that tension... That tension that you felt in the in when they were making the rope, it is charged sexually in that moment. But yeah. I don't think that there is even a tempting of romantic nature between them. I think that Bronco Henry was just a caring cowboy man. I don't think that there was any actual relationship that ever happened. Like so, hmm. relationship in the capital R sense. Like I, I think that that when Bronco Henry saved his life in that winter moment, I think that's when Benedict Cumberbatch realized how he felt. But I don't, right. I think that they maintained a platonic relationship and that Benedict Cumberbatch was always in love with Bronco Henry 
and Bronco Henry was just a person who saw Benedict Cumberbatch for who he was and watched out for him and taught him how to quote unquote be a man and basically molded him into a person that is not going to be put upon by other people for who he is, right? Like he, not, not that he taught him to be closeted, but like taught him to be like just the best at everything so that he could just ne- be okay, right? He could always be yeah. okay. He could be self-sustained and that he has become more and more hardened after losing Bronco Henry, not because he lost a lover, but because he lost somebody who knew him and somebody who took out, like he, he became worse because of the loss of somebody who kept him like uh, being a good person. Right. Um, yeah. So when I see that interaction um, between the kid and Benedict Cumberbatch, I didn't ever worry about something happening there because I felt there was, it was, it was higher than sexual desire, right? It was, it was, we see each other. I'm going to do for you what Bronco Henry did for me. And that was kind of how I was watching this film. So at the end, it just felt like this, he lets his guard down and then dies because of it. This kid finally has somebody like that kid. We know he doesn't have a father around. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, like it's somebody steps into this role that takes every role of an older man that he could possibly have, like Benedict is potentially taking over for him in that moment. And then he loses that because of this gift that he was being given. So, so to me, that's the story I was watching, which is powerful on its own in its own way. It is not this story at all. Um, And when I talk about it being fundamentally a different story, it is not just because Benedict Cumberbatch dies because of a malicious premeditated act by the kid. It is because that kid is a fucking sociopath and he has done this before. Like he killed his dad. That's the only way I think you can interpret this. When he, there's that scene where he's sitting in front of that bale of hay and he's talking to Benedict Cumberbatch and Benedict Cumberbatch is kind of being a dick. And he's like, he's like, your mom, she's on the sauce. And he keeps talking about it. And he's like, (laughs) she never, he's like, I bet she always was. And he's like, no, not really. And he's like, bet your dad was though. Right. And he's like, yeah, my dad was. And he talks about how his dad, who was an alcoholic, was really shitty to his mom. (laughs) And basically he talks about being the one who found his dad and having to cut him down. There is no way he did not kill his dad to protect his mom again. This, this is, this is a clearly a sociopath. When I say this is a fundamentally different film, it is because every look this kid does is a fucking serial killer. Like every scene he is in, no matter what he's doing, I realize that he is a sociopath. Like, and, and there, there are moments where he just, the way he behaves, when you look at it from the frame of like, this is fucking kid that killed his dad. Like, just, just go back and watch the movie and think of him as being like the Joker or something. Right. (laughs) And then, and then rewatch this film and go like, oh my God, this is a scary fucking movie. And not because Benedict Cumberbatch is an asshole. It's because this kid is the one who is actually the scary one. He is like, when you watch every single move he makes, every glance he gives to a certain person, every like things that I interpreted as him feeling out of place or, or him, like the first time I watched it, the things that I see as him being out of place or him feeling 
awkward around other people or, you know, anything like that. Watching it a second time, knowing what he does at the end, I was like, oh my God, he feels out of place because he literally cannot feel the way a human does <laughs> because he is like a, a hardcore sociopath and he doesn't bond with people except for his mother, which whatever, I'm not going to go in and diagnose that, but, <laughs> but it, it, that, it, see, that is interesting. Like it, it isn't like it didn't occur to me that there is a chance that he had something to do with his dad's death. Like, of course, like that, that kind of story especially given where this movie goes, you do always wonder, is it cyclical? Has he protected his mother in the past? I still, and maybe I need to watch it a third time to see if I would have the feeling you did. I still, even with the belief that he definitely killed Benedict Cumberbatch and may have killed his dad, I still am surprised if I would interpret him as a serial killer rather than the West is full of brutal men and he sees himself as his mother's protector while also being awkward. <laughs> but like, so so we know that he's a high, highly intelligent, right? So basically, mm -hmm. he is identical to Benedict, Benedict Cumberbatch. Excelled mm -hmm. in academics. Um, very, very intelligent. Um, he, he talks about his dad knowing how strong he is. And Benedict Cumberbatch is like, you strong, your dad was wrong. Um, but like, he just mm -hmm. doesn't see him as being like a formidable person. But he's telling him in that moment that like, yeah, my dad knew. My dad really knew because he fucking saw it in my eyes when I killed him. And then hung him after I killed. Like you know, what I mean, like like it's 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 sinister. Like like just just take this piece of knowledge and go back and just watch the barn scene, and 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 then instead of imagining a awkward young man being next to an older man who is like you know twisting and grabbing rope and stuff in like a way that's like clearly supposed to be sexually charged, and just watch mm -hmm. his eyes and watch the way he. He's like, oh, is this Bronco Henry's thing over here? Oh, the guy who died of anthrax? And well, like, right. but, but so that scene, no matter what, plays that way. Because it, b my belief, retroactively, after finishing the movie the first time, and the same the second time, is he knows, of course, that he's trying to kill him here. And so the sexual tension that I felt in the scene is him intentionally wielding that. Because he knows... He, he's, he, you know, he 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 has Benedict Cumberbatch's number. Like he yeah, knows he's how he's to get him. In the fact that Benedict Cumberbatch has no idea what's coming, and he is just mm. fucking like maniacally, he might as well be twirling a dagger, right? <laughs> <He's>, <laughs> I see. What what I felt is he is he is aware and he is playing Benedict Cumberbatch, but also now that it is a sure thing. He does kind of this part of him does want to also reveal himself or know this person like my sense. And maybe I need to watch it a third time now to see the Joker version um, <laughs> is that this is a kid. He he knew this guy had to go because it was him or his mom, like his mom is basically killing herself um, because she can't live with this person. Yeah. And. He believes for that reason he has to put Phil out of his misery just like the injured rabbit he needs to kill, you know, for mercy. Like, his awareness that I have to kill this person for the greater good, which when I say that, yeah, okay, kind of sociopath. Um, <laughs> <I> mean, 
In in movie terms, there are moments when people know the bad person has to die, but that doesn't mean they lose sympathy for the bad person or feeling that they want to understand them or understand their humanity better. And so my read of that scene is that he knows he's going to kill him. He is partly using romance, sexual attention to ensure that Phil is not paying attention as he continues with the rope because the rawhide looks like trash. Like, you know, that, that, that is why it, it, it is surprising to me that the first time you didn't retroactively go like, oh my God, of course he did that on purpose. Have we been staring at that rawhide like this whole time, but, this like black fly infested. <laughs> but so for me though, the, the re- like obviously the rawhide itself can't just be so bad because Benedict Cumberbatch would have been like, this is really shitty. Well, I can't make a rope with this, right? It has to be at least good enough to be used for rope, right? But that's beyond that point. The, the, the main reason why I didn't see that in that moment is because I have been watching this person let down his guard and this other person let down their guard and them coming together and mutually deciding that each other are beneficial to their survival and maturing in the state of the world that they both live in. And to me, I, I, I honestly believed the words he was saying when he was like, I wanted to be like you. Like you've been teaching me to do this rope. I went out and I wanted to make my own rope so I could show you I could do it. Right. It, it what's funny too is now watching the, when they go off and he's teaching them quote how to ride. Like yeah. to me now it's laughably bad how much he's still just fucking with them. But I was watching because I knew like the, the thing that tipped me off to it is because I, I saw an article before the festival about like, whether or not Benedict Cumberbatch should have been playing this role, like that, that oh, sort okay. of conversation. So I, I, I entered this film knowing who Benedict Cumberbatch's character would be. Like that was just a thing that I entered it. So all along, I'm watching a tragic hardened person in the back of my head. I'm really worried about what's going to happen. And when it turns to be very more platonic and like, uh, this is how you survive in the West. I'm going to teach you to be a cowboy. Then I was like, man, okay, I'm on board with this story. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I'm watching mm-hmm. a film that is very much about one specific thing. So I am just like oblivious to all the fucking signs of like, this kid's a sociopath. Benedict Cumberbatch is just blind because he, he's, because he, basically his game is thrown off by being caught by the kid, right? He finds his camp um, or his little hiding, his little, you know, poo bear hole <laughs> where he goes into the tree trunk and hides his honey. Um, uh, so to me, I am seeing a person who is like, I just need to change who I am around this kid. Also, I'm starting to respect him as I see that he is an intelligent person. He's stronger than he looks, uh, blah, blah, blah. Like, like all that kind of stuff. I'm watching a transformation of two people who are finding a way to be mutually beneficial to each other. And mm-hmm. I, I'm just so on board with that story that I'm completely oblivious to the fact that like this guy's going to die and the kid's going to do it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. No. Yeah. That, that, that's interesting. I, and, and also I don't feel the serial killer aspect of it, but I do. What I feel is the kid is cunning and dangerous. I don't necessarily ascribe psychotic 
or, you know, calculating to the point that everything he does everywhere is a inability to fit in or an alien type behavior so much as he knows his advantage. He, the kid is the new world, the world that doesn't need the West because, you know, um, we're in an information age, like being smart, being <laughs> cunning, having like things at your disposal, being able to play mind games is like more powerful than being really, really strong. Um, I'm also I'm intrigued at your first interpretation of the Buck Henry relationship. <laughs> Bronco, being Henry. Bah! <laughs> Bronco Buck Henry was an actor and uh, like, you know, filmmaker in the 70s. Uh, that's that's who he was. He was a real person. <laughs> <laughs> that's why it keeps happening to me. Uh, well, and Bronco and Buck are both like words for horses. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, the Bronco Henry relationship being platonic, it is it's interesting. Like, d- does that mean your is your imagined backstory that Bronco Henry was a straight man? So as I watched the film, yes, that was my interpretation the first time I watched the film. I obviously didn't notice the first time I watched the film that Bronco Henry wrote his name on those magazines. Um, yeah. I can write that off as Benedict Cumberbatch wrote his name on those magazines after he died. So in case anybody ever found them, there'd be plausible deniability about whether or not they're his. Um, you know, that, that's just like waving away whatever. I And it could have been a thing that Bronco Henry did buy those for Benedict Cumberbatch. They got caught and then he said, those are mine. And nobody questioned him because he's fucking Bronco Henry, right? There, there's lots of ways that I can like wave away. Mm-hmm. But the way I interpret it is I... I think that the relationship they had remained platonic and Benedict Cumberbatch was incredibly in love with him, Uh, whether misguided or not. It was that he it might have been that like because he took him under his wing and taught him to be who he is, he is like emotionally and soully indebted to him in a way that like manifested itself in this love. But But I don't think that the romantic love that Benedict Cumberbatch had for Bronco Henry was reciprocated by Bronco Henry. That was just the feeling I got from the way the fact that no one else knew and the fact that like he like clearly from from the moment we, we, we meet uh, Benedict Cumberbatch's character, he can't sleep at night without Jesse Plemons, his brother being in bed with him. Right. Like he just, he can't like he he's, He's emotionally tied to needing another man in his presence. Um, and obviously it's his brother, so it's not a sexual thing. It is literally like mm-hmm. I, I'm like, there are moments where he is scared. He is like literally scared yeah. when his brother is, you know, shagging Kirsten Dunst. Like yeah. he, he doesn't know what to do. And he, 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 for a man who is so like rugged, I'm a cowboy. Uh, <laughs> like <laughs> for him to be just cowering in the dark at night, if his yeah. brother isn't around, like clearly there is something that is not just the absence of a lover lover, right? It is, mm-hmm. he needs something to keep him going. And I think that Bronco Henry was all of those things to Benedict Cumberbatch, yeah. but I don't think that Benedict, I don't, I don't think Bronco Henry was like in transactionally. He, I don't think they were lovers. I think that right. he was, it was a one way love. And Bronco Henry was just like a cowboy. <laughs> yeah. See, so that is interesting. So my 
I have a comment and a question. Uh, they're not related, but they're both about questioning your n- narrative of Bronco Henry. Yeah. Comment is Benedict Cumberbatch makes a lot of com- like he says a lot of things to the effect of he taught me how to see things differently. He saw things a certain way. It was the way he saw things that seemed to me more transformative about things about life he showed him than just how to survive in the West. Um, and my question is, what was Jesse Plemons' relationship with Bronco Henry? Because I feel like in the beginning of this movie, the tension between Benedict Cumberbatch wanting them to cheers the last 25 years and the anniversary of their first ride with Bronco Henry and everything... I feel like Jesse Plemons not just like isn't getting it, but is actively averse to it. And I'm curious if there, because to me that subtext could mean Bronco Henry was not only in a quote relationship um, with Benedict Cumberbatch, but was in fact abusive. And perhaps the two brothers had experiences with him that shaped them in different ways, you know? Yeah, so so to to answer the whether or not there was abuse going on, um I I will answer two two different sides to the same coin. One is that Benedict Cumberbatch says that Bronco Henry taught him to see the world different than other people. But he is also shocked when the kid looks out and sees the dog in the mountains. I don't yeah. think Bronco Henry could ever see or sorry, I don't think Benedict Cumberbatch could actually see it. I think that he has been, he was never able to live up to Bronco Henry, but he was trying his darndest. I think Mm. that Bronco Henry was an unattainable standard that he tried to be. And it's like, it's like in Mallrats where the guy can't see the, (laughs) the sailboat in the, in the cross your eyes thing. Um, it, It feels like one of those moments where like, it, the first time I watched the film, he's just shocked that this kid can also see the world differently. I think he's genuinely shocked because he didn't fucking know what was out there. And he's never been able to see whatever it was that Bronco Henry sees. And this kid just looks out and goes like, oh, yeah, it's dog barking. And he's like, what? Like he because when, when he looks out there and all the other guys are like, hey, uh, Phil, wh- what, what you what you looking out there for? What you look? What do you see out there? And he's like, well, Bronco Henry made me see shit. You don't see it you're pretty lame but he never says mm-hmm. like i'm looking at a dark barking dog right yeah he yeah he's kind of like a pathetic kid he, yeah he, he's, he's like he's like well if you can't see it i guess you'll just never get to see it then you little bastard <laughs> right right so it, fe- yeah. it feels like it feels like he um yeah it, it just feels it feels different right um so i i, I think that he literally never could do the things that Bronco Henry does. And he is like shocked to see that this kid has the gift or whatever. Um, Now to talk about the relationship of the brothers uh, with Bronco Henry, I think that Bronco Henry knew who Benedict Cumberbatch was Um, like, you know, all the stuff surrounding like how Benedict Cumberbatch feels. Um, Mm. And I think that he was kind of an asshole the way Benedict Cumberbatch is now. I don't think that there was sexual abuse taking place. I think that there was just general assholey abuse and that potentially Benedict Cumberbatch was being protected by Bronco Henry where he treated him differently because he knew who he was 
and like mm. wanted to protect him, but also had to pick on everybody else. Jesse Plemons, we know he dropped out of school. We know mm. that he's shitty at being a rancher. We know that he is bad in conversation. He is just the runt. Like he is the runt of the family, never good at anything. And I think that Benedict Cumberbatch was Bronco Henry's favorite. He wanted the brother to be a, you know, like a cool cowboy the way <laughs> Benedict Cumberbatch was. But Jesse Plemons could just never fit in. And I think that like a like any child who dislikes their their father or whatever. Right. Like, I think that's the, the equivalent relationship that Bronco Henry had where it's it's yeah. he doesn't see him as this great man. And he doesn't understand why uh, Benedict Cumberbatch did see him as a great man. And I don't think it's anything specific. I just think that like now Jesse Plemons is a person where the only thing that he can do, period, anywhere, is to be the guy that has the checkbook and pays the tab and uh, does the books for the cattle herding and all that kind of stuff. And, and I feel that like he, 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 Jesse Plemons' character just never found his lot in life. Um Mm -hmm. He was luckily born into a family that was wealthy and was able to make do, but he's never had a thing that was his own. He's only gone along with whatever the family does. And the first time he finds something that's his own is finding uh, Kirsten Dunst's character. And I think that like, yeah, yeah I, I, don't, I don't know if that answers your question, but I, I just found him that like, yeah, his brother calls him fatso all the time and talks about how shitty he is, right? Like, like there's lots of reasons why <laughs> why he could do that. And like, even yeah. in the scene where, like, where um, uh, Benedict Cumberbatch is at, at the dining hall and he's talking about how like everybody daring Bronco Henry to like try to jump over all the furniture from the saloon or whatever in the Senate thing, and he's, he's trying to get his brother to like go into the stories about like you know the tall tales and stuff like that, and his brother's like, I don't fucking know how to talk to people. And like, yeah, I didn't take that as that guy was a dick and I never liked him. I took it as like, I don't, you're just, you're, you're spinning tails and I don't know how to participate in this conversation. I'm just trying to have my dinner. That, yeah. Okay. That's, that's interesting. I'll, I will take that read of Jesse Plemons character and it does explain his stilted behavior a little bit more to me. Jesse Plemons was a a simple man who is clearly not as interesting as Benedict Cumberbatch, not as well read. He is more likely to be contented by minor things. He's less likely to be extravagant, but I guess I didn't read the runt aspect to the degree that you did. I read them as like successful brothers who have had this thing going for a long time. And that is why Benedict Cumberbatch feels threatened when suddenly Rose threatens to, break the thing that they had and take him away. And I guess I didn't read as much into his inferiority complex relative to his brother. But, but like, just, just go back to the dinner with the governor. Right. Um, sure. it's like, it's like, Oh, uh, I have a wife now and she plays piano. Want to come to dinner? And then they get there and he's yeah. just like, my brother was supposed to be here so he could talk. <laughs> right. <laughs> right? <laughs> like, he, he has, he has nothing going for him. Yeah. And he, fi no, right. he finally was like, I have two boxes I can check. Like I have a talented wife. Um, and then he was like, I literally didn't think more than that. I thought that would be enough to sustain us through dinner. Turns out it's not my brother won't wash. So he's not going to come to dinner. Uh, she won't play the piano. Uh, and like, just, just the disdain the governor has when he's like, well, I'm sure you played piano real good another time. <laughs> 
<laughs> and he's like, we're leaving, God, though. That piano scene is still just so brutal. The moment, even on rewatch, the moment, like, Jesse Plemons mentions that she plays piano, and then she's, like, starting to say, like, oh, but I'm not very good, and they're already, like, reorganizing the chairs. Yeah. I just, like, it's just horrendous. I hurt so badly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, any any anything else? <laughs> no, I think I think you covered it. I am I know you don't have an answer to this question, but don't you feel because I think you agree there is no version of this movie that wants you in present tense to believe the kid is a serial killer who is plotting to kill um been in the cover batch. I, I, I'll I'll go one further in the opposite direction. I, I I think at the end when he's staring at the window holding the the rope and he's looking at uh, that's the other thing too. It's a fucking rope. His dad supposedly hung himself when he's talking about like oh yeah I've never I never made a rope before. I was like that motherfucker made a rope like. <laughs> Like, it just feels so... You don't have to make a rope to hang someone. You can just buy a rope. No, but this kid is such a sociopath. (laughs) He wants to make the rope. Um, But no, the the serious comment I wanted to make is, at the end, when he is standing in his his window, holding his rope, and his mom and Jesse Plemons get out of the car, um, and, and they're standing there, and then, like, she reaches up and kisses him, and he's looking out the window, there is no way he is not contemplating whether or not Jesse Plemons gets to continue to live. <laughs> like I, I, I see that scene and I'm like, cause, cause I think it's just a guy who he likes helping his mom cook and making flowers for the dinner table. And so i like, like he, he liked it back at the little inn that they had. There is not like, there's not a world in which he wants to share his mom with other people. And I think that Jesse Plemons is like, is this going to last? Do I need to kill him too? Is he good enough for my mom? Like I, I a hundred percent buy that. He is like premeditatively. I still don't read it. <laughs> I don't read it that way at all. I see Jesse Plemons and Kirsten Dunst are like simple and happy together. And this kid is about to go out into the world and he just needs to know that his mom is okay. Not that he needs to kill everyone <laughs> that is near her. Um, <laughs> I'm telling you, man, I'm telling you, <laughs> But anyway, what what I was saying is in present tense, the first time you watch the movie, I don't believe Jane Campion wants you to possibly believe this kid is planning a murder. I think she wants it to be a reveal that hits you later. Yeah. And so that means whatever your interpretation, ultimately, whether your interpretation is he's a serial killer, whether he's a conniving person who has realized a way to get rid of the his mother's abuser, or whether he is a lovelorn person who has tragedy happen to him the movie wants you to get at least two of those interpretations out of the same performance yeah. you know it wants you to get he is like a awkward faltering kid who is slowly warming to this person and also he wants to kill this person and maybe he's a serial killer <laughs> um, but either way i, I think mean, the I fact don't, that the movie i don't know how many people you gotta kill before it counts as a serial killer <laughs> the, the fact that this movie can be like the face and the vase at the same time with those performances, I think is like really impressive. And that is like the meta aspect of the movie that I think is interesting. Even if you liked one interpretation more than another. Yeah. Like they're both there that both of the interpretations are there at least for the present tense viewer to enjoy. Yeah. And I think that is intentional. And, and I, and I think in that moment too, like 
I, even when I, even when I like outside of my new theory, which is he is just a sociopath and like the, this yeah. was the inevitable end to how it was ever, like it was just the only way this thing could end. Um, before, before that moment, I, even when thinking back, cause I, cause I read a thing talking about, uh, cause ba- okay. So the thing that I, I haven't stated yet is, um, I kind of hinted at it in the text that I sent you was that like, I specifically w- saw an article about the ending to the film and I wanted to read it because I wanted validation for my theory that Bronco Henry and uh, Benedict Cumberbatch's character, Phil, were not lovers. Like, that was the kind of thing that I was looking for. And then I was surprised <laughs> that the kid just, like, premeditatively killed uh, Benedict Cumberbatch's character. Because um, mm-hmm. at the time, for me, there is a moment where, like, it was still hard retroactively before I rewatched it. It was hard for me to accept that because, to me... He comes back, they've had, which at the time I thought was a good outing, <laughs> um, not a Bond villain telling you his plan right before he murders you. <laughs> 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 um, <laughs> am I right? Um, yeah. So, so when they came back and he is just pissed and he's like, that lunatic woman sold all my pelts uh, or my hides. I'm so pissed. This is going to be crazy. And he is pacing back and forth and he's freaking out himself. And to me, that is somebody who is like, how can I distract him from being mad at my mom in this moment? Um, And that's when he's like, hey, hold on. I have hides. We can still finish the rope. It's okay. Forget about my mom. I have materials we can use. That does to me, even in that moment, knowing the truth before I rewatch the second time, to me, that is... A problem solver right like hey you want to make me a th- you want to make me a rope you were going to burn the hides anyways minus the rope making hides i have hide myself which i made because i wanted to be like you i'll give it to you you can make it there, there's even a scene where he's he's pacing back and forth and he's looking at the rawhide that is already cut into strips and it's just drying on on the thing and he's like do i tell him that i like do i show him that i did it because like it just feels like he might think that I stole some too, and he might be mad. Like right, th- right. there's a lot that he could be weighing in that moment. It doesn't feel like now's my chance. I'm finally gonna kill the guy. <laughs> See, like I well, like I would. I'm remembering now my first interpretation, which might still be it, but maybe the movie sprinkles more in, was that he is obsessed with death. You know, he catches the rabbit and uh, cuts it open and freaks out Thompson McKenzie. Yeah, you know. yeah. Um, <laughs> He's definitely obsessed with this stuff because he wants to be a doctor and we are in like, you know, American Gothic times. So everything is creepy. Um, I think if you really pressed me, I would say that he got the anthrax hides, not necessarily because it was to kill Phil, but because he wants to study like deadly things in general. He's just like intrigued by them. Yeah. And the moment that Phil is like, going on a rage against his mom and trying to convince his brother to leave her, that she's a big problem, that this has to be solved, whatever, that that is him making the decision like, yeah, I'm going to I'm going to kill this motherfucker. And that that is the moment that it shifts into a certainty and him pacing back and forth in front of the rawhide is him like deciding that he's going to do this because I don't feel like he turns on any of the like 
more forward. I'm going to ask you questions. I'm going to prod you about your life things until that that moment. Uh, I, I'm trying not to laugh. Uh, this like uh, uh, like you just remind like inadvertently reminded me of something, and I realized there's a third person he's killed in this movie. <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> the kid that the friend that he makes at college. Mm-hmm. I think he literally killed somebody just to practice dissecting an actual full-size human being. Because what? remember, he's like, Mom, I made a friend. She's like, oh, that's great. You should bring him by the ranch. And he's like, nah, I mean, there's somebody here he wouldn't get along with, right? <laughs> it just feels... <laughs> no way. You, I'm not following your theory here. It's clear that he doesn't want anyone near Phil. <laughs> I'm telling you, he murdered the kid at school so he could practice dissections. Because think what about it. What is he, he's very like, funny to me <laughs> about this hour and 15 minute long podcast recording is this movie is literally based on a book. Like at any point we could have looked up like what? <laughs> maybe <laughs> what the book says. Maybe it's the subtext of the book. Or maybe this is <laughs> the, the, you know, the filmmaker's interpretation of the book. I'm just telling you, man, mm. you fucking killed that kid at school because he's a sociopath. No, I I'm not. I'm not following you across that bridge up in them hills. (laughs) See, I think, and I don't even know if the geography of the film makes sense, but I think the thing he sees in the hills, yes, there is the dog shadow, but it's really what the hills represent. And the hills represent those wonderful trips that he took alone with Bronco Henry out there. And that is their relationship is the like, the the physical everything that they had in the hills and every time he's talking about them and what he sees differently it's just him talking about his like love for bronco henry and that's that is where i think the bronco henry story begins and ends (laughs) (laughs) and he wants to bring the kid there for similar reasons and the kid decides to kill him because he thinks he's gonna wail on his mom too hard and he, the kid is messed up from his father's suicide. He didn't kill his dad. But I mean, if, do you think if that there was, let, let's pretend he doesn't kill him and let's pretend all that sexual tension is real and let's pretend they are going to engage in some sort of relationship the way that you believe that Bronco Henry um, engaged. Don't you think that this intelligent kid might think that if they engage in a relationship, it might make Phil stop concentrating on his mom And like the same way that he started to be nicer to him might be nicer to his mom and thus not need to kill him. (laughs) Maybe, but Phil is just like abusive and prone to wild swings. I don't know. (laughs) I'm not saying whether he should kill him. I'm just saying he's killed three people and Jesse Plemons is next. (laughs) I also, by the way, don't believe in any read of the story that the kid wants to have a romantic relationship with Phil. I think he realizes that he can warm up to him and by better understanding him, I think he is trying to do that. And then when Phil wildly overreacts about the burnt hides and is screaming at his brother and has kind of like finally said the quiet part out loud, he sees that like this is only going to go one way and I have to stop it. Like at some point in time, he might have been planning on like somehow extracting the anthrax from the thread and putting it into coffee for Phil or something like down the road. But in this moment, he realized that like, oh, 
because I'm a psychotic genius, I know that he needs to finish the thing and I can give him the anthrax through the cut that he just got in his hand. Yeah, um, well, yeah, because he didn't like plan that the guy would get a cut and have to use the, you know, like there is definitely some improvisation. I mean, he did get a cut on his hands when he was uh, uh, neutering the cows. Playing. Yeah. Yeah, he was yeah removing the logs to see when the rabbit no, no, would no, no. run when, out. But... When he was uh, cutting off the balls of the the cows, um, he, he's like, man, you do this like 50 times a day and you cut yourself on the last one, what are the chances? Mm. Um, so it's like... Interesting, but, but then when he's removing the wood is when like he gets the it, bad one where yeah, he starts bleeding. And the, the point I was trying to make is that he, he's seen him cut himself because he doesn't wear gloves because he doesn't think he needs to. So he... Okay. He could reasonably assume he that he was going to cut his hand at some point again while doing manly work. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm just telling you, man. <laughs> this kid's a sociopath. All right. All right. Enough games. I still enjoy the film. still think the kid's crazy. If you made it this far <laughs> and you haven't seen it yet, watch the movie. Think about it in your head about him being a sociopath and then write in and let yeah. us know what you thought. Get back to us. <laughs> You can be the third co-host. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Should we move on? Should we come on? Come on into our next review, Stephen? Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> All right. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll see you in a bit. Bye. <laughs>